by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. To ignore EJ communities is to, for people to ignore it and policymakers to ignore it and continue to coddle industry as the only source of decision making for this administration or another is jeopardizing the lives of people. Black people or brown people or indigenous brothers and sisters, we all have that same sort of history of uh, them basically dumping, for lack of a better word, uh, pollution into our neighborhoods because of because they didn't they, they thought of us as something less than human. That's Raul Grajalva, his representative and chairman for Arizona's third district, and Representative Donald McEachin, who's representative of Virginia's fourth. They are our guests today, and I am Rev here with your host of Coolest Show. Well, I'm excited about this conversation today. It's a critical conversation that I think everyone within the climate movement, everyone within any progressive movement needs to take the time and listen to what we're going to be discussing today. This is a critical time. Many things are happening in the world. We have wildfires, droughts, and many other issues going on. And so I am grateful. I am blessed to be having two of my friends two just uh, uh, legislators who have been holding it down, uh, Representative Raul Grajalva, Representative Donald McKeachin. Uh, uh, Representative Grajalva is representative for Arizona's third district, and Representative Donald McKeachin is representative for Virginia's fourth district. And they are um, true Americans. As someone who was in as an officer in the Air Force, um, I've said it many times, I did not pledge my life to fight for Democrat or Republican, but to fight for Americans. It's, this is not an issue we're talking about, about Republican or Democrat. So this is an issue about Americans. They're not looking to have only clean air or clean water go to Democrat households and have dirty air and dirty water go to Republican households. They, that is contrary. They want every single American mother, father, child, everybody, to simply have clean air and clean water. Representative Raul Grajalva uh, began his career in public service as a community organizer in Tucson. Four decades later, he continues to be an advocate for those in need and a voice for constituents of his home community. From 1974 to 1986, um, Congressman Grajalva served on the Tucson Unified School District Governing Board, including six years as chairman. In 1988, he was elected to the Pima County Board of Supervisors, where he served for the next 15 years. Chairing the board for two of those years, um, Congressman Rahalva resigned his seat on the Board of Supervisors in 2002 to seek office in Arizona's newly created 7th Congressional District. In 2018, Congressman Rahul Grahava became chair of the House Natural Resources Committee. Outstanding. He also serves on the Committee on Education and the Workforce and is the chairman emeritus 
of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, as well as a long-standing member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. He and Representative Donald McEachin introduced the landmark Environmental Justice for All Act uh, to the House of Representatives in February of 2020, after releasing a discussion draft of the bill in November 2019. And also with us, we have my other friend um, from the great state of Virginia, um, Congressman Donald McEachin, who was first elected to represent the 4th Congressional District of Virginia in the United States House of Representatives on November 8th, 2016. He has been selected by his colleagues to serve as a regional whip co-chair of the House Democratic Environmental Message Team, whip of the Congressional Black Caucus, co-chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Energy, Environment, and Agricultural Task Force, and vice chair of the Sustainable Energy and Environment Coalition. During his first term in Congress, Representative McEachin co-founded the United for Climate and Environmental Justice Congressional Task Force and continues to lead the task force as a co-chair. Representative McKeach represents his constituents and, his, and the Commonwealth of Virginia as a member of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, the House Committee on Natural Resources, and the Select Committee on Climate Crisis. He's a lifetime member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated and the NAAC. He is also a member of the Virginia State Bar and the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association. My dear brothers, welcome. It is so good to have you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. So let's just get started. I, I may, people will be listening to this, and sometimes as they will see you as legislators, and they don't see you as human beings, unfortunately, in this climate. They only see you behind the table on C-SPAN. So let me first start with you, Congressman Gahaba. If you want people to know who you are, for the, those young folks in the streets, and in the streets, who is Representative Raul Bahal? You know, I, 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 I like to tell people that, that there's really no, no uniqueness. I, 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 uh, I, I grew up in, a, in, a, in the neighborhood that I live in, uh, and uh, I, I attended the local public schools. My, I'm a first-generation American. My, my parents uh, immigrated from Mexico to come and work, and uh, and. And after I, I uh, went to the University of Arizona, I was a social worker when I had a real job and uh, working with people. And I did, uh, I got involved in community organizing. I think the first one was an organization that isn't as prominent as it used to be, but it was then. It's the Welfare Rights Organization, uh, working uh, primarily with uh, welfare recipient women and uh, making sure that their needs and their families' needs were taken care of, uh, involved in uh, Issues of uh, that were important: voting, empowerment, and uh, and by way of uh, confronting an issue, uh, got involved in environmental justice issues early on, and and that is because the neighborhood where I grew up was uh, uh, their their aquifer was contaminated by TCE that the industries adjacent to our neighborhoods uh, poured into the sewers, leached into the into the into the aquifer and contaminated the water. Cancer, lupus, uh, a variety of diseases, deformities for babies and uh, high uh, mortality rate for uh, 
for on pregnancies, lost pregnancies, and the list goes on. And it took a while, but eventually, you know, through litigation and organizing, uh, uh, we declared a Superfund site. And to this day, the cleanup continues. Uh, and and, and it, it became obvious to me that the permitted uh, emissions that were by the state and the federal government and the local uh, government were all adjacent to, to the neighborhoods that were predominantly of color, mm. working class, and poor. And, uh, and I think that, be, that kind of ingrained in me that, that, this, that this was an injustice as well and that it, it fell within the, the scheme of civil rights and, uh, and disparate treatment. And uh, so that's where my, uh, my, my sense of purpose regarding environmental justice came from, from that life experience. And I, and I said, when, uh, uh, and, and the lives that were altered by that, and the lives that were cut short by that, uh, to me, because of the actions and, and, and of, uh, of uh, governmental agencies and industry, and with the community not having the recourses to be able to fight back. And I, uh, I learned a great lesson there, and it has been one of the passions that I took with me to Congress, and it continues to be a passion. I've, and uh, uh, I saw those at a local level, and... Uh, and the more that we've dealt with this issue, uh, that Mr. McKeachin and I have dealt with this issue, the more the commonality of this experience uh, go, goes across, uh, across the country. And that's, that's essentially my life. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a very powerful story. Um, well, Councilman McKeachin, you, you heard your counterpart in Arizona. Uh, I know you're down there in Virginia on the East Coast. So uh, who is Representative Donald McKeachin? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for having us on the show. And uh, that was an inspirational uh, story that uh, Chairman Grijalva just shared with us. Uh, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a, a lawyer uh, by training. Um, but perhaps the most uh, impactful educational experience I've had is going to seminary. Um, I uh, was in elected office beginning in 95 through 2001 lost an election. I was out of uh, elective office for a few years and found my way going to uh, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology in Richmond, Virginia, at Virginia Union University in 2005. And the reason that was so impactful, well, there were a number of reasons, but relative to this show, the reason that was impactful was because 2005 would also be the year that I re-entered politics. And so there were two things happening almost simultaneously. Uh, as I was running for office, this woman just decided that she was going to make me her candidate, and she was all up in my ear, brothers, about the environment. At the same time, so that's what's happening in the natural. At the same time, what's happening in the spiritual is that I'm in seminary, and Virginia Union wants to talk about creation care. And so I'm getting it from both ends, right, spiritually and naturally about the importance of the environment, and it just clicked. Um, uh, I... I uh, have been a, uh, uh, someone who's been exceedingly concerned about the environment since then. I've made it, a, uh, it the focus of my legislative efforts, both at the state level and now at the federal level. Um, and the more I get into the, uh, this uh, issue of environmental justice, the more I realize that, at least from my perspective, I'm not trying to force this on anyone else, but from my perspective, uh, it is a ministry is very similar to the ministry that Christ had in, in terms of taking care of 
the working poor because what we find in the environmental justice community is we find uh, people of color, we find our tribal uh, folks, we um, find people who are poor, all of whom have been, for various reasons, put on the, outca- on the outside of society looking in without a voice and in need of, uh, in, in a need of help. And what was so beautiful about what uh, the chairman and I did, and I'm very grateful to the chairman for selecting me to help him because it's not every chairman that will go to basically a rookie legislator and ask him to uh, assist. But he allowed me to play Robin to his Batman as we've gone around the country, listening to environmental justice communities and trying to not dictate to them, but have them dictate to us what the solutions ought to look like. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment, I'm sure. But uh, he and I are basically, basically Scribners who cobbled together what we heard and put it into legislative, into legisl- into a legislative format. Um, but this bill was written by the people, for the people, and uh, uh, it is our honor to uh, to try to advance it and to educate other folks about it. Uh, thank you for that, Councilman Keechan. So I want to I want to get into that because you you both have created something that I think is um, so important. You know, you've put forth the landmark environmental justice bill known as the Environmental Justice for All Act. Um, but before I get to that, let, let's just get to a little bit of housekeeping. I guess with Congressman Keita, I'll start with she won this one. Um, clearly, somewhere along the line, the issue of climate change, literally climate change, um, that is before our eyes, and the issue, stunningly, of clean air and clean water <laughs> has become a partisan issue as though only one side wants clean air and clean water. And I know you are both great Americans. Let's just take a little back step. First, explain when you say environmental justice. There are those who think that is something that is radical, that is off the hinge. When you, when you say environmental justice, what do you mean? And just to be clear, you... Just to answer for the people, you want clean air and clean water for everybody, but it's easy just to kind of make sure they hear you say that. But explain what is environmental justice so they understand when you say that, what you mean by that. Oh, well, thank you for that. And absolutely, make no mistake about it, we want clean air and clean water for everyone. That is a human right uh, to uh, be able to access this wonderful gift that God has given us in terms of the planet Earth. And uh, part of that, obviously, is being able to uh, uh, enjoy a clean environment. And what we mean when we talk about environmental justice is we're looking at communities who have been basically cast aside. Um, Let's talk about what a lot of your listeners will understand, at least at some level, about redlining. There was a time when African Americans couldn't live but in certain places. We were redlined into certain areas. Well, guess what they did? They they decided, well, since we got all the black folks over there, uh, we're going to also put the factories and we're going to put the landfills and we're going to put all the other sorts of things that will pollute the air and and, uh, devalue property and uh, pollute the water because we can't have all that stuff in our area because we want our property values to go up and we want to have pristine air and we want to have clean water. And so... There are historical roots to this environmental justice movement because of the discrimination that was uh, practiced, whether it was upon black people or brown people 
or or our, our uh, indigenous brothers and sisters, we all have that same sort of history of uh, them basically dumping, for lack of a better word, uh, pollution into our neighborhoods because of because they didn't they, they thought of us as something less than human. We were the other, um, and so uh, uh, that is the uh, justice that we strive for. You know, in this time. And I'm going to be quiet in just a second, but I think this is important to realize in this time of tearing down Confederate statues, in this time of uh, dealing with uh, a police brutality, both of those issues are incredibly important. And I take nothing away from those issues. Uh, but let's not make a mistake here. This moment is about 401 years of systematic racism. And that really plays out in the area of environmental justice, because what you see is we see how we got here, and now we see what the results are because you take uh, a, a group of people, expose them to the toxics, toxins that they've been exposed to. They already start off behind the eight ball when it comes to health issues, right? We have higher incidence of asthma. Uh, Chairman Grijalva talked about the, the cancer uh, clusters. Um, and then you take a disease or, I'm sorry, a virus like COVID-19, lay it over that, and then you don't have to wonder why black and brown communities suffers in a disproportionate way from this virus because we're living in poor areas to begin with. We have to deal with asthma. We have to deal with bad water, bad air in the first instance. And then you add something else to it. It is, it is literally the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, Cosmic Kitchen, I mean, I think that's just a powerful um, way to put it. And thank you for that breakdown. Um, I want to just move there to Chairman Grijalva as you listen to um, Congressman McKeachin. I know the two of you collaborated, um, not just together, but also with communities that are impacted by environmental racism and oppression to craft, to craft a comprehensive and landmark environmental justice bill, as I mentioned, known as the Environmental Justice for All Act. That bill was introduced in the House representatives and included things such as amending and strengthening um, the Civil Rights Act, 1964, outdoor access for all, and environmental justice grant programs. Um, can you just explain why it was important to craft that legislation and what else is included in that bill? And what does it mean for environmental justice communities? I, you know, one of the things, and and and, and Mr. McEachin uh, has been a has been a co-equal partner through this whole process. And one of the things that that I learned, and that uh, I think Mr. McEachin already knew, is that when I first got to Congress, and I mentioned that environmental justice was an issue of mine, I I spent time with myself and and and, and other people that know something about their what I thought was crafting the most unbelievably great piece of legislation around environmental justice and 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 uh and filed it and submitted that for and it didn't didn't go anywhere at the time and and i and i wondered to myself why why am i not getting the buy-in from uh communities most impacted by uh by uh environmental injustice and i think the realization is this that i think many times here in washington uh uh Members of Congress and senators do it backwards, top down, and 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 this has been the the way the decision making has happened to environmental justice uh, communities across this country for a long time, top down. 
And so we began with the communities of uh, having a, a huge role, the, the, the issuing of the draft, the, uh, the uh, convening of, uh, of environmental justice leaders, organizations, and individuals in, in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol uh, to continue this process, the input that was ongoing through this whole process, the sending out not only of the draft, but what the legislation would look like, and, and, and the uh, ownership that occurred as a consequence of doing that by organizations. I think that was the most important thing. Civil Rights Act extends that protection because it is an issue, and that Mr. McEachin brought it up. We're dealing with issues of uh, unequal treatment. We're dealing with issues of neglect, racism, and discrimination. Uh, when it comes to how decisions are made regarding the lives of the families in, in, in EJ communities. And so civil rights has to be part of it. Uh, it's strengthening NEPA, the, the, the public process part, so that it has some teeth and the communities have uh, prior knowledge, full disclosure, and the ability to be able to impact uh, uh, the decisions being made by governments. And the other issue is that the key to this is the cumulative effect. Uh, many times we deal in isolation. When I was looking into this in, in my own hometown of Tucson, well, we're going to permit, we're going to allow this plant to, to do these emissions. But along that corridor was 20 other plants doing those emissions. Mm. And so I think cumulative effect is key uh, to, uh, uh, to dealing with this issue. I think that is a critical part of this legislation. Uh, and and as, as we're dealing with the issue of the, uh, Coronavirus, COVID opened up a door we already knew and a window to look through that we already knew about, but all the pre-existing conditions that Mr. McEachin talked about in, in our communities. And, and as such, uh, it is also, uh, we, this piece of legislation was being formulated before the pandemic hit. And uh, we think we have an initial systematic response to the systematic racism and neglect. And, and I think that's why it's, it is, is garnered uh, such attention. It was also a wake-up call for mainstream environmental organizations that you cannot ignore a huge portion of the justice equation in terms of climate or anything else when uh, we're talking about uh, the environment and, and climate change. There's a good example. Mossville, near, uh, near, uh, in Louisiana, near Lake Charles. Uh, the, one of the plants is uh, burning, a biolab, I think it's called, and it has chemicals that are, that are dangerous. The governor tells them, this has just happened with the, the hurricane. Uh, close your windows, tells that community. It's predominantly African-American community uh, and uh, established by former slaves. And within it, as, as some of the environmental justice leaders say in the article today, uh, uh, you know, this is there is a slew of plants that, are, that have permitted admissions and that uh, this, this danger is an ongoing danger uh, to, to those communities. I give that example because it is an effect of climate change, but who, who gets hit so hard are these communities that are having to endure uh, much of that. And I think what, what the bill does in a nutshell is it empowers communities, but it also codifies into law uh, the responsibilities and the accountabilities that government and industry have to have to these communities and the right of redress to these communities. I think those are the critical parts of this bill and, and, uh, and essential is to codify it into law. 
And the fact that now the Senate companion uh, with Senator Duckworth, Senator Booker, Senator Harris, uh, now gives us the ability to have it out of both chambers and, and a distinct possibility that this could become a reality. Hmm. Chairman Grijalva and Congressman Keechan, so I understand, and I, again, thank you so much for introducing that legislation. Um, I guess I, I kind of want you to unpack that a little bit more. Um, so those who are listening can understand, because you're saying a lot. And I just want to give an analogy to kind of help that part of the conversation. So for instance, what you're saying is that for, as Congressman Keechan said, for 401 years, particularly for black people and indigenous people, people of color, there has been a certain amount of um, oppression in which people have been marginalized and oppressed. And in that, for 401 years, there have been things that have been done in those communities because they have been either the path of least resistance, they've been vulnerable communities, or just sheer racism. Everything from housing to where people are putting plants, where people are literally putting things that would affect their water and their air. And so over the course of time, we're now at a point in time where you are all saying that, listen, we need to fix that. But it's not a problem that we can fix today. It's a problem that started a long time ago. And so in that, what you're saying, for instance, is say say somebody is in a household and they have been getting bad food (laughs) for their entire life um, and they've been, for whatever reason, they they now have a number of ailments, diabetes and other health issues. What you're saying is to heal that person, to get that person correct, we have to do a wholesale change, not just on what they're eating. We have to give them medicine. We have to do it. And in the household they live in, folks who may not have diabetes, they have to also change their lifestyle because it affects everybody. I guess that's the point I want to get to you right there. There are those who don't understand the need for environmental justice in their communities. And they're baffled when you begin to talk about racism or oppression or companies that have been polluting people on purpose. How do you explain the need to say, listen, where we are now in regards to environmental justice in this country, that our system is failing and has failed Americans, but this legislation will help us all. How do you get to that point so everybody can be on the same page? Um, Congressman Keechan, you want to start? Uh, Sure, I'll take a a shot at it. And I will share with you that um, there's a growing realization that you cannot solve the climate crisis without addressing environmental justice. And we see that realization borne out in the select committee uh, on uh, the climate crisis, which was chaired by Kathy Castor in the House of in the House of Representatives that I had the honor of serving on. Um, And they literally took our bill that uh, the chair and I cobbled together and made it the very center of a 500 and some odd page report on the on how we get out of this climate crisis that we're in. Uh, the Biden Saunders Unity Task Force on Climate Change did the same thing and Congresswoman Castor and I had the occasion to serve on that committee as well. They took our bill and made it the center of that plan as well. The reason that's important is, and that demonstrates that folks are starting to understand that, you know what, you can try to solve carbon capture issues, you can try to do all these other things, 
You can join the Paris Accords again. And all that's important. I'm not trying to diminish that. But until you solve environmental justice issues, you haven't done anything. Hmm. Because as long as there are environmental injustice in this country, and quite frankly, across the globe, but, you know, we're dealing with our little corner of the world, uh, you cannot solve the climate crisis. Because as long as you're polluting air, as long as you're polluting the waters, you are exacerbating the, the problem, not solving it. And so uh, the way, I mean, you know what, I'm, I'll just tell you right now, brother, I'm going to take your, your uh, metaphor and use it and not give you any credit for it. Like I thought of it on my own with the household and the diabetes and all that. Um, but having said that, uh, that's got to be the way we explain it to people. We've got to explain to people that, you know what, as long as some of us are sick, we're all sick. Right. As long as, you know, and the only way we're going to get out of this sickness is that we all start practicing healthy habits. Um, and, in, and, in, and in the context that we're talking about, we're talking about cleaning up our water, cleaning up our air, and, and, and taking these uh, frontline communities and helping them re- rehabilitate themselves. Wow. But, but, but Councilman Gahalva, as you hear uh, Councilman Keechan, he is correct that, that, that climate justice is racial justice. It is key for us to solve this problem. But then there's an outrage because then how do you respond to the fact that this administration the Trump administration has rolled back 100 environmental protections, including NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, yeah. and including the destruction of the EPA, which now is look more like a, a pollution uh, protections agency. Um, so what does that mean to you as you are sitting there and you and Congressman, you and Congressman Keechan are literally trying to save lives but this administration is out. It's not even, in other words, they're literally giving a salt shaker to the person with high blood pressure. They're literally giving ice cream sundaes to the person with, 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 with diabetes. They're literally giving this to that person who you're trying to save. They're literally giving them the thing that is going to kill them. How do you, in your capacity, you and your colleagues on Congress deal with that? Number one, I think, as, as, as Mr. McKeachin knows from his, 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 his presence on the Resources Committee, you know, the effort has been to keep the worst from happening with this administration. And the 100-plus rollbacks on regulations that are meant to protect the, 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 down, the eliminating of science as a criteria and decision-making by this administration uh, uh, and disdaining science and fact uh, and uh, and and the fact that it's corrupt, you know, when you when you put when you put the fox in, in charge of the hen house Wheeler at EPA, when you have Bernhard who has spent his career working for gas and oil, and industry in charge of uh, in charge of uh, interior, and the same issue with with energy, uh, and 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 the associated other uh, people that come in from the industry and the sector, they come in with one agenda. And the agenda that we're talking about today is irrelevant. So how do you confront that? And I think, first of all, it is, is that environmental justice, at, at, when we're dealing with the issue of climate change and environmental protection as a whole, and, 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 and the environment as a whole, that it cannot be an outlier. Mm. And, the, and that people that are involved in the issue, I remember when the first leaked draft of the New Deal, the Green New Deal came out, vulnerable, frontline, AJ communities were not part of, of the discussion. 
And we brought that to the attention of the people that authored that. And, 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 and I mentioned that as an example, that the, the EJ is seen as a separate issue. It is integrally part of any response that we have to, to the issue of climate change. And we have to. That affects humanity and, and species as a whole. But when it comes to the burden, it, it is EJ communities here and, and, third, and in the third world, poor communities across the country, across the globe. And, and, and so the example that we set here on an international level is important. And you cannot solve the problem of environmental, uh, our, our planet warming, without dealing with the reality that's happening in the environmental justice community. I think people have accepted that as a now integral part of it. We, have to, we can't rest on that, but it has, to be, it has to be part of it. Otherwise, there is no solution that is going to be equitable or that is going to impact people. To ignore EJ communities is to, for people to ignore it and policymakers to ignore it and, consider, and, and continue to coddle industry as the only source of decision-making for this administration or another uh, is, 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 is jeopardizing the lives of people. And, and I, uh, I, I think that this is why everybody talks about this election being consequential, transformational, epic, uh, historic, and all those are true. But when it comes to the most vulnerable in our society, when it comes to the poor and people of color, this election is, uh, is, uh, is actually about our lives, mm. actually about our future. Mm. And, and, and so I think that uh, communities have to understand that part of the prob- thing we're going to have to do with EPA, with energy, and with uh, interior is we're going to have to do a cleansing. Mm. We're going to have to come in, reprioritize, uh, and, and have laws that give us the wherewithal and give administrations and bureaucracies the, the, the notice that this is a law and it must be followed. And that's why codifying EJ into law is so important, so that we don't have discretion, that we have a law that protects people. And, and that's been the impetus behind this from the beginning. But no, if, if, if we were to, to replicate these last four years with no consequences to this administration and the corruption and the 22,000 lies that have been told by this president and this administration that we know of, and uh, then, then EJ communities continue to not only to be uh, at, uh, jeopardized, as we saw with, with the hurricane in Louisiana, uh, but they become even, even more in danger. What this administration has done with EPA and, 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 and Interior is dangerous. It's not only corrupt, it's dangerous, and it's dangerous in particular to the communities that we're talking about today. Hmm. Well, Congressman Gahala and, and, Congress, and Congressman, y'all sound like not just uh, uh, legislators, but y'all sound like people who, are, who understand the consequences of what's at stake here. And I know that elections have consequences. So Congressman Keechan, I know in one, of those, one of the candidates <laughs> running is, uh, is, has, and they both actually, uh, Vice President Biden and uh, Senator Harris have put forth um, climate uh, and environmental plans. And in July, Senator and Vice Presidential Candidate Kamala Harris, uh, along with Senators Cory Booker and Henry Duckworth, introduced the Environmental Justice for All Act in the Senate. 
So for those who are listening, can you describe the similarities and differences of how the two of you and the aforementioned senators, in, uh, those bills either connect with what you put forth or where there's a difference? Well, they're substantially similar, which, was, which is intentional, um, because we need to have this conversation on both sides of the uh, Capitol, not just in the House, but also in the Senate. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't mind telling you that senators, especially uh, that trio, um, garner a lot of attention. You know, uh, uh, the chairman and I have done what we can to make sure that folks understand the importance of this issue. And, and, uh, and uh, we, uh, we've tried to be like Paul Revere and, and uh, alert the country. But it's wonderful. It is wonderful having help uh, and, and of the stature of uh, Booker Duckworth and Harris uh, come help us in, in this in, in this endeavor, and so uh, uh, there could be some. Uh, I, I will confess I haven't read their bill cover to cover. There could be some minor differences, but the point remains the same: empower folks, give them the ability to, uh, and the resources—not just the ability, but the resources also—to uh, rehabilitate their communities. And uh, uh, don't don't try a top-down approach, but let it come from the bottom up. No, I, I agree. I think that's something that uh, Chairman Gopala mentioned as, as how you both put and, and the staffs of the senator's office, uh, Harris, uh, who's been involved with it uh, in, in terms of the information back and forth from the beginning, from the convening, from the draft. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I said that essentially uh, I, similar bills, the, the, the major portions of it, cumulative effect, civil rights, NEPA, transition, funding uh, for transition and for empowering EJ communities to be able to defend themselves and, and uh, have accountability uh, and educate their communities, the, that, the, those are consistent in both of them. Chairman Gohalba, let me actually add to that. Um, because one thing, as you, as you know, we're fighting this battle on many fronts. Um, and it's taking a toll for us, many of us, on the grassroots. We're fighting the battle, as you mentioned. Thank you both for this legislation, but it has to be passed. And so we need to make sure we have the folks and the votes to get this legislation passed. Uh, We're fighting the battle um, within the Arctic. As you know, there's a huge battle that is going on to protect the Arctic and standing with our Gwich'in sisters and brothers up there. We're fighting the battle, as you know, in your home state of Arizona and the home state of Congressman Keechan in Virginia from Richmond. We just actually won a battle um, in Virginia with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and that was a powerful uh, battle that we we continue to lift up the, the pipeline fighters. We're fighting the battle with those in California with the wildfires. We're fighting the battle with those with who are still dealing now with Hurricane uh, Marcos and Laura. We have those who are dealing with offshore uh, drilling. We have those who are fighting with the the, the, the chemicals and fracking. Um, throughout the country, we're, we're fighting this battle on a many fronts. You know, it's a lot of fronts. And so, but you mentioned something. You continue to say something about the issue of justice, the larger environmental movement, understanding what justice means, and all of us coming together. Can you speak more, I guess, for you both, Chairman Grohalva and Congressman Keaton, can you speak more of the need for our movement to come together and break the silo so we can be successful, what it means, so we can understand that demonstration needs legislation, we need litigation, and we need preparation. And can, so can you kind of discuss 
the need for us as a movement, how legislation goes with demonstration and so forth, and how those things need to come together and how we need to break the silos. Well, sure. I mean, I'll at least, I'll at least take a stab at it. Um, and I think there's a growing awareness about the interconnection of all of what, you, uh, what, what, what you're speaking to. Um, the the uh, Speaker of the House likes to quote Abraham Lincoln and, and remind us constantly that uh, with, with public sentiment, you can accomplish anything. Without it, you can't accomplish anything. Um, and um, that's, that's me paraphrasing, her paraphrasing President Lincoln. Um, and the point is this. If we get public sentiment going in our direction, we can fix this climate crisis. I mean, look at what public sentiment has done in the past. It was public sentiment that brought about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It was public sentiment who, in, in just, just in, this, uh, in the time that I've been in Congress, saved uh, Obamacare. We saved it by one vote, but we saved it um, because people said enough is enough. We want things to work this way. And so uh, we need folks in the streets uh, peacefully protesting uh, about injustice. We need folks to make sure that there are legislators in the seats who are prepared to deal with those injustices. And then, of course, we need to make sure that we have some crackerjack lawyers who can go into the courts and, and, and help us enforce not only the laws, but also uh, get us redress uh, when those laws are broken. Hmm. I, I think, I think there's, there's a very powerful coalition that, that is, that, that needs to move it. And, and everything that you mentioned, Reverend, it has to be part of it. preparation, I think is key. The litigation point uh, has been one of, one of the most important thing. And with, with the Atlantic, that was the, one of the most important points in being able to uh, resist and stop that. Uh, we, the, uh, the other issue I think is, uh, is the coalition that needs to be built because the, inter the intersection between public health disparate treatment, the need to, uh, to, to respond to systemic issues of neglect, discrimination, and racism, all fall in to what we're talking about today. And, and, and so I think it's this coalition around, and people that care about conservation, and people that, that care about how we protect bear's ears, the drilling in the Arctic, offshore, fracking at the very minimum, the people's right to know what chemicals are being used in this fracking process. And the sovereignty issues around indigenous people in terms of what affects their uh, tribal lands and what can and cannot happen in those tribal lands. Uh, I, 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 uh, I think all those, it's a very powerful coalition. And, and for the environmental movement as a whole, to be able to connect to, to communities of color, to urban communities, and make that a stronger part of the coalition is the public, the public will and opinion that uh, Mr. McEachin is talking about. I think it's, um, I think that's, that's going to be it. I think this is going to happen. There's another thing that the EJ community and, 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 and environmentalists as a whole happens. When, when we have a Biden-Harris administration, there are going to be key positions that occur. And a commitment to what we're talking about today uh, on all the levels that we've talked about today has to be there of the people that are going to assume the leadership at EPA and at interior and at energy. And I mentioned those, 
and, and, and at HHS in, in terms of health. They, they have to understand that this is a priority issue and that the administration has to be responsive. It cannot be a back burner issue. It cannot be an issue that we get to later uh, because I think this response around EJ issues has consequences and has a domino effect on many other issues that we're dealing with in this country. Uh, it's about fairness, it's about uh, redemption, and it's about uh, uh, correcting history. Hmm. And, and, uh, and I think those are very powerful, but the environmental movement as a whole needs the EJ community. And the EJ community as a whole needs the environmental movement to be partners in, in, in this fight. And I think we're almost there in building that tight coalition. It's not there yet, but it's getting there. Hmm. Let me ask you both uh, a question dealing with, as you both know, I'm originally from Louisiana and uh, seeing family and friends drowned in the richest and most powerful country in the world during Hurricane Katrina, still, I still deal with that reality. And that actually motivates me to be uh, an environmentalist and a climate justice warrior. But I want to get to that. You are both have put forth legislation, um, and Councilman Keith, I really want to speak for you to speak for Chairman Castor's committee a little bit too as well, just to bring that into the conversation. But I really want to bring up the issue of climate resiliency and climate adaptation. We are dealing with the fact that we are praying, and I know we are praying, that we can get some common sense and morality, that we can change and turn this boat around. But in the meantime, we still have wildfires and droughts, and we still have hurricanes, and we still have chemical spills. And so how do we, how do we deal with the climate adaptation part of this to prepare citizens? Is, are, is there legislation? Are we just discussing the fact that we got to stop climate change? Or are we also having conversations in Congress to do with the reality that there is a fossil fuel industry that is waging war to keep us on this path? And if we don't change, and we have to prepare ourselves so that we can take care of our communities, so they're not in the pathway of danger. Councilmember Keechan, what's, what's happening on that front in re regards to climate adaptation and climate resiliency to prepare particularly vulnerable communities so they're not just literally dying in the wake of these storms? Well, you, you, uh, the good news is those conversations are taking place. Um, we know uh, that we have to make our communities more resilient. We know that, for instance, that uh, whatever our best efforts are between, we can do everything perfectly between now and 2050, and uh, uh, we're still going to have climate change to a certain degree. Uh, life is going to be different post-2050, regardless of what we do. Uh, and so as we go forward, we already know that we have to make our communities more resilient, whether it's uh, weatherization efforts, or, or, or what have you. We know that when there's a disaster like what we uh, saw in Katrina, uh, like what we see right now going on in, uh, in, the, in the Gulf, with the Gulf states, or what, what we saw uh, that happened to Puerto Rico just a few short years ago, we know that we can't just replace those buildings. We've got to build them for the next hurricane. We've got to build them so they can survive the next disaster. It's not enough to build them to the standards of what they were at, We've got to build back better, to use a phrase that you're going to hear a whole lot about in the, in the coming months. And so um, uh, 
those conversations are taking place. And look, folks, it's going to, it's going to cost money to do this, right? It's going to cost money to help people weatherize their homes and, and make their communities more resilient. It's going to cost money to rebuild the Gulf states and to rebuild Puerto Rico uh, and, and make sure that those buildings are hardened, not for a Category 2 or 3 hurricane, but for a Category 5 hurricane, because those, those are things that are going to be a fact of life going forward. Um, you know, there hasn't been uh, two hurricanes hitting the same area since, what, the 1950s? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, my prediction is, is that we're going to see more of that in the, in the years to come. And so we, can, uh, we will adapt. We will become resilient. Uh, we have the technology to do all that. Uh, we just have to make sure we have the political will to spend the money to do it. Yeah, the Reverend, it's a, it's a, and, and Mr. McKeegan said it's an investment issue. It's a priority issue that 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 the discussion has to center around, because the transition to uh, to being more sustainable and and uh, and and more resistant uh, costs money. Now, the transition of a workforce from uh, the dependency on, on on fossil fuel is a uh, that's going to cost money. Uh, the, the conversion of our, our system of delivering of energy to allow renewables and alternative energy to be to be to be the the, the principal source is going to cost money, and 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 rebuilding uh, the status quo is not going to do it. Us coming out of this pandemic and saying let's put everything way the way it used to be, no, that can't work. And 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 the and the, the topic that we're talking about is a great example of that. Uh, too much is out uh, for us to to say that we're going to recreate what used to be there. Uh, for some communities uh, uh, that have the wherewithal, it might be a good thing. But for for vulnerable communities and frontline communities, status quo is not the answer. And I and I think it's an investment issue and and a priority issue. Uh, and and I think that's the work ahead. And I think in Congress we all have to do our part. You know, in, in, in the Resources Committee, we, our public lands and waters are 25% of the greenhouse. We contribute to, to the warming and, and uh, uh, climate warming in, in, uh, in the United States, 25%. We could also be 25% of the solution in terms of how uh, we, we adapt, we do adaptation to that. And, and, and there's legislation to do that. Others, the, the very important committee that Mr. McKeech is on, ENC. The strategies that come out of there. It, it's a combination of issues. The debates will occur on carbon. The debate will occur on, is it 2040? Is it 2030? Is it 2050? Those debates need to occur. But the fundamental issue of keep moving, moving forward has to be an investment question and a priority for the incoming administration. And, and the investment issue has to be a priority for Congress. Hmm. Well, uh, Chairman, and kind of this is my last question. And I, again, I just want to thank you both. Um, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, I don't, I don't, I look to take it very seriously that you are both um, members of color. And I, in my capacity, uh, I will tell you both, I know that as a, a member of the board of directors for the League of Conservation Voters, I have, and I will say, I say this publicly. And that I think it's important for groups like that to support 
and to continue to support um, members, obviously, who are climate uh, activists and warriors, but also to, to support uh, members of, who are of color who are leading on this. I think all members, again, who are fighting for the climate issue, but I think it's critical for us to find uh, more voices like both of you, because I think it will connect in a more res res resounding way. But this is my last question to you both. I just want to let you know that that's something I'm going to do because seeing you both inspires me and, and essentially and you have with the work you've been doing and with, with your legislation. But this is my last question to you both. And so first, uh, Congressman McKeith, I go with you first and Chairman Grohalva. I actually kind of want you to speak. This is the issue that we're dealing with, not only with the issue of equality, but the issue of existence. And so, you know, Congressman McKeith, I kind of want you to kind of go and go in time a little bit, go into the future. Um, I kind of want you to go to 2120. And in 2120, um, none of us <laughs> on this Zoom call are going to be here. But what will be here will be literally your legislation. And maybe there'll be, maybe at Virginia Union, it'll be a little, a hall or a wing or a dormitory <laughs> with the McKeeching dormitory or something of that like or whatever. Um, or uh, uh, there'll be a painting. But I guess I want you to speak to right now, if you could speak to that next generation of Americans in 2120 about what you were fighting for and why this fight was so important, what would you want to tell them? I would tell them that this, that uh, we were fighting for them. Um, you know, I'm 58 years old. Uh, the climate crisis is only going to affect me, but so much, at least me personally. Um, but it's going to have an, if it's not handled correctly, it's going to have a devastating effect on my children. And when they decide to have children, it's going to have a devastating effect on those children as well. And so the chairman and I have been, and, and others in this movement are fighting for them. Uh, we are more than happy to plant the proverbial tree that we will never s sit under. Uh, but we take great solace and great comfort in knowing that if we do it right and we do it now and we do it in a timely fashion, that tree will grow and it will give all sorts of shade, good shade, to those uh, folks who are our descendants in 2150. And regardless of whether there's a Macichan wing to the seminary or not, uh, <laughs> I'll be smiling from wherever I am if we get this done right. Amen. Thank you, Reverend, and thank you for this opportunity and, and my good friend, uh, Mr. McEachin, as well. Uh, I, I think we're setting a template. I think our effort is to set a template for the future. And, and, and is, is, this, is this piece of legislation the end-all, be-all of where we need to be? No. I'll be the first to say that. But it's a template. And this template is saying to this generation that will be there, Added, that they're inheriting a template that I think we can build on. I, I, see, I see that part of the future that I won't be around on. I have five grandbabies and they're going to be around. I see that future as being multiracial, mm. fair, and more just. Mm. And if our, our, our work on this issue, of, uh, on this piece of legislation, is a template that he helps toward that end, that's what it's there for. Uh, the, the, the resolution and the solution is, is before us. 
It's the work ahead. And I think for the generation coming up and the generation after that, it is to set a template that says that we're trying, that, the, that this nation continues to, to, to uh, struggle with its history, but it is also deep seeking, as John Lewis said, to be that perfect union. And, and this is part of that template. And, and I, I'm proud of the work that the EJ community did in, in, in Kabul and helping us put this together. Uh, I, I'm proud of the fact that we have momentum, and, but I I'm also uh, understand that the inheritors of what we do are going to be the implementers as well. And, and I hope we're setting a good template. I, I pray that we are. Hmm. Wow. I am so inspired by this conversation, and it touched me. Um, if folks want to find you or your staff or they want to find out more about the legislation um, or other things you're working on, um, how can they do that, Congressman McKeechan? Uh, just go to, we, we, we both have official websites. Uh, mine is, uh, uh, you can just Google Donald McEachin, M-C-E-A-C-H-I-N, and I'll pull pop my, uh, the link to my, uh, my official website, and there you'll find uh, not only this uh, uh, bill, but other efforts that we're making in the, uh, in the green space. Hmm. And Chairman Grahava, how can folks Person, find? I have a personal website and, and a community engagement uh, uh, office, uh, Natural Resources, uh, also has a, a, a website and uh, the staff there and the staff at uh, uh, any of the committees are, are available to people in terms of questions, needing more information, and I would encourage people to do so. And in terms of this legislation, both to send a summary or the full text, whatever they need, because, uh, yeah, you said the, the preparation is so important, Rev, and I think, you know, be prepared to be able to to uh, defend what we're doing is, is important and that information is available. We'd be glad to send it. Hmm. Well, God bless you both. Um, thank you for your work. You're both truly great Americans. That's Raul Grajalva, his representative and chairman for Arizona's third district and representative Donald McEachin, who's representative Virginia's fourth. They are our guests today. And I am Rev here with your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.